So we're diving in, uh, continuing our series, working through the, the book of Job. And this morning, we're getting a, a little bit of a, a Cliff Notes version, working through a large section of dialogue, if you will. But uh, I want to set that up just by starting the conversation. One of the things I've noticed is we as a people group, church inside and outside the church, really value good counsel. We really value good counsel. We appreciate when we have somebody that we can go to. And in fact, growing up in Chicago, one of the terms that we used is, I've got a guy. Do you guys use this? Uh, do you use this here in California? I've heard maybe a couple times. And in, in you think through the different avenues or areas of your life. I've got a guy. Like a, I was thinking even of mine. I've got a few guys. When I'm dealing with tax questions, I've got Larry Winningham. I've got a guy. When I'm investing Bill Barry, when I'm talking about... Uh, legal stuff, Gary Rafferty, home improvements, Brad, sports injuries, Tim Starr, real estate, Matt, singing, Chad and Erica, and the list goes on and on. You probably, I suggest, have a guy in a lot of different areas that you go to for counsel. And it's something that, that carries even into things that are more the, the matters of the heart, maybe more important things when someone's going through a difficult marriage. What do you do? You're like, man, you really need to go and get with a counselor to kind of work through some of your different things. Because why? Because we value counsel. Why do we value counsel so much? I would suggest it's because understanding, and if you're taking notes, you might jot this down, understanding informs behavior. Understanding informs behavior. In other words, the, the, our grasp and understanding of things then influences our behavior in the way that we act and perform in response to that. So we want to be so careful. That's why in this church, we're so committed to God's word because we don't want to send people off track when they're counting on a word from the Lord. And so that's why every Sunday you'll typically hear me. I'm like, hey, it's better if you guys open this book yourself so that you learn to investigate. So you can say if like, whoa, Scott's a little bit off base there. You can determine for yourself. I encourage that as a church to have a guy that you go to, and I would suggest the word of God is that guy, because if we get this wrong, getting the wrong answers to your difficult questions shapes an improper worldview that leaves us disillusioned and often bitter. In other words, if you think about it, if, we, if we've got the wrong ideas, if we're collecting all of this, then, then when storms come and troubles come, you're just like, oh man, I, I was wrong on this and I'm frustrated with God. And so pointing people back to scripture because we're surrounded with people and media that's constantly, whether we realize it or not, giving us counsel. And what we allow to make it through the filter is going to determine how we respond to challenges in our life. And I would suggest it's not just the professionals that give us counsel. It's also our peers that we're surrounded with. Do you guys realize that? Who you surround yourself with? That's why there's such uh, importance placed on choosing wise uh, people to surround yourself with. Because a lot of times people say some knucklehead things. Have you guys, anybody uh, attest to that in your, in your own life? Some counsel that you receive? I jotted down a couple things that I've heard over the years of things when somebody, just some of the things people say in the flesh, even well-meaning believers. Have you guys had this before? Somebody that had good intentions for you. How about this? When dealing with somebody that's going through a tragedy, like a loss of somebody that they care about, God just needed another angel up in heaven. 
Anybody ever hear that? She's like, no, he didn't need another angel up in heaven. He has plenty. And if he didn't have plenty, he could make more. Here, here. So, so here, God is just, how about this one after a, a job loss? How about this after a go- job loss? And you guys can probably already, you can finish this. God is just closing one door so he can, oh, maybe you guys have heard that before. And, and, and you're like, well, maybes, maybe, but what do doors have to do with my situation right now? Like, that's, it's, it's a bummer to think through some of the counsel we well-meaning believers give. How about this one? If God brings us to it, he'll bring you through it. Here's just some good, good advice, a rule of thumb. If anything rhymes... Don't use it during tragedy. Like, seriously, like, if something rhymes, like, th- that, that shouldn't ever be used when somebody's dealing with tragedy. Just skip things that rhyme. That's just a, a good rule of, of thumb. Or, or, or this one, which I hear often, God never gives us more than we can bear. Liars. He always gives us more than we can bear for the purpose of us coming to our knees and saying, God, I can't bear this. I need you. You see, the counsel that we give can be, if we're not careful, literally dangerous. And I would suggest in our text this morning, Job and his three knucklehead friends trying to come to the conclusion as why is this happening was terrible counsel that he was given. But I would suggest also that we can learn through this process, one, not to be those guys, two, how you can run things through the filter of God's word to see them appropriately. Let me pray before we dive in. God, thanks so much for this chance to be together this morning. And even though we might joke about it, man, we're so grateful for this rain and your provision of that. We celebrate that even here under this roof. I pray now that you'd speak to us through this text, that you just uh, illuminate kind of how we respond to trial, illuminate what you want us to receive, how, how we respond to the big question, why. God, I pray that you'd teach us through this text. We invite that in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to work our way through a, a bit of uh, scripture here this morning, but the first section I wanted to start with because I'd suggest that the, his friends, Job's friends, started off really strong. They started off out of the gates really good. We'll turn to Job 2.11 to look at their initial statements, or response, actually. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, if you guys haven't been here for a couple weeks, we recounted all that Job had went through. He lost his family, everything he owned, and now he's sitting literally with some kind of a miserable skin disease. So he's been through a lot. So they're showing up. They've heard that. They come each from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So to recap that, you see what's happening there. They show up, and they literally show up with a plan 
to comfort and support him. It's a good plan. And they, they show up, and out of the gates, they make some really good decisions. The first thing you notice is that they literally come, and when they didn't recognize him from a distance, as they get closer, it says that they wept loudly, tore their clothes, and sprinkled dust on their heads. In other words, they joined in his pain. They joined in. They, they, they suffered and grieved with him, alongside of him. And I would suggest that is such a powerful thing that we have to offer somebody that's going through tragedy and trial. Man, just going and being with them. Going and, and, and shedding a couple tears, extending a couple hugs. Man, that means so much. And those of us that have experienced that can attest to that. Man, it means a lot when somebody, somebody goes along uh, that line. I was talking with Stephanie Ross this week, and she's experienced some, some loss in recent life. And in the past, too, she, when she lost her grandmother, she was telling me this story, and she goes, this is going to sound kind of weird to you. She goes, but when I found out word that my grandmother had passed away, she says, I, I, was, I was in an old Navy, and I was with my friend Tanya, and it was just, she's just like, it just all struck me like all at once, and Stephanie doesn't really, isn't really too concerned about what people think about her. And so she said, I just, just took a second and just laid down on the floor in between some of the, the, the clothing racks, just to, just to cry a little bit. First off, that was kind of an uh, interesting picture of, of Stephanie in an old Navy. Uh, but then she said, the coolest thing happened, though. She said, her friend Tanya, best friend at that time, best friend Tanya, literally, instead of saying, Stephanie, what are you doing? Get off the floor. Literally just curled up next to her on the floor, just hugging her, just hugging her. It's like, you know what? I think we could learn from that. We could learn from Job's friends. Just going through trials with somebody, not necessarily trying to solve it, just grieving with them. Along that same line, you see also in the, in the section of Scripture, what does it say that they did for seven days and seven nights? They just sat with him in silence. Oh, we could learn so much from that. Just keeping our big mouths shut. Not choosing to come up with antidotes or platitudes or solutions or suggestions or whatever. Just being there and keeping quiet. And what would have happened in this story if they just stuck with that game plan? Remember it says their game plan was just show up in comfort and support. Like how about if you just stuck with that? But there's something inside of us that makes us think that we have to give the answers to why. Think about that for a second. How arrogant it is for us to want to answer for God. God must be like, really? You're, you're, you're speaking for me? Like you're, you're answering this and you know how? Why is it that you know? And so we're about to, to look at his, his three friends and really each one of them gave one same big idea and you wish so desperately they would have stuck with either silence or here's another suggestion. You can try this out for yourself. When somebody is trying to answer the question why, how about if you say, I don't know. Whoa, there's a novel idea. I don't know why. I don't understand God fully and all of the things that he does. I haven't solved it. We want to so put them in a, a nice little box that we understand in the, the magnitude and majesty of him that is not bound by time and space. Really? You grasp everything about God? But instead, instead of remaining silent and acknowledging, hey, I don't know, 
but I have seen his faithfulness and his track record in my own life, and he's been faithful and good. So, man, that's what you cling through through this difficult time. I'll tell you what, if we just gave some kind of version like that to people going through tragedy, I think we could gleam a lot from that. But instead, these guys try to answer the question why, and to summarize, looking between chapter 3 and all the way up to chapter 30, they basically have this dialogue between his three friends giving their ideas as to the reason why. And here I'll summarize and save you some effort. Actually, I wouldn't like to save you effort. I think you should read it. But this, this, this is the big idea that all three of them have this same conclusion. You are suffering because of your sin. You're suffering because of your sin. That's the reason that he gives that all three of them come to that conclusion and they all give in kind of three different cycles of debate, three different rationales or reasoning behind coming to that same conclusion, but still nonetheless, that same conclusion that you suffer because of your sin. We start with his first buddy and we'll look at these three briefly, Eliphaz. Eliphaz uh, seems like the leader of the group and somebody passed this on to me. I thought it was kind of funny. It was a description of, of him talking through it. At least the picture's funny. Uh, but a little bit of what we know about Eliphaz, he is from the Temanite. He was a Temanite, area known for the wisdom of their inhabitants, known for the wisdom of the inhabitants. And what I was thinking about as it relates to that is we have to be careful with credentials. Be careful with credentials. In other words, just because somebody has credentials, a letter or the initials by their name, a degree, experience, whatever, they've written so many books, doesn't guarantee that they give good counsel. Anybody been on the receiving end of that before? Or some people say some crazy stuff and they've got a nice PhD in front of their, their title. And you're like, okay, so he's from this area that's known for, for being really especially smart. But then he says some really especially unwise things. Maybe you've experienced that too this last week. My wife, Adrian, and I, we're uh, friends with our literally next door neighbors. And we heard news of uh, her, her shiel uh, losing her mom, and she lost her, her dad just this past fall, so losing both parents in a matter of a couple of months uh, to cancer. So we decided we'd take the drive up to support them up in uh, Pismo Beach. So we drove up there on Monday with the family, uh, showing up for the memorial service. And as a, as a pastor, I'm real anxious to hear what other people have to say. And so it happened to be in a, in a Catholic church, and this, this gentleman with long flowing robes and scarves and things dangling and like all this stuff was, was coming out and gray hair. And I'm like, man, this guy's going to have something really good to say. Like, I'm sure there's going to be some real wisdom coming out there. Literally 40 minutes of confusion. I still have no idea what this man was talking about. He surely didn't bring up anything in here. And it broke my heart as I'm listening. I'm like, man, this opportunity that people could have heard about the hope of Jesus Christ was blown all under the umbrella of credentials. And you're like, man, what a missed mark. So Eliphaz, with his credentials, comes in, what we've titled him, and you see it on the screen there, is experiential theologian. In other words, I've had a dream and vision about you. 
you are a secret sinner. Basically, that's the summary of what, what he said. And he describes it, and that's, that's almost like his, uh, his point of authority or what he was speaking one for his, his personal experience with God. And there's plenty of overlap of this in our own lives that we encounter people, and it's hard to debate with somebody when they say, God told me this. And you see, even he describes it in 4.13. He says, amid thoughts from visions of the night, and in verse 15, a spirit glided past my face. In other words, God came and gave him a message and said, Job is suffering because of his sin. That's the message that he heard from the Lord. And here's the caution for us to take away from this, from Eliphaz, because there's parallels to that present day, is be careful when someone has a word from the Lord for you, and it's not coming from this book. It's not coming from this book. I would suggest that's an area of caution, anyone with direct revelations from God. In fact, Ezekiel, God actually warns Ezekiel about this. I thought this was a really powerful section of Scripture. A common issue in that day and time in ancient days was to hear something from the Lord and speak on His behalf. This is what it says, Say to those who prophesy from their hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. He goes on in verse 6, They have seen false vision and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Think about that for a second, just the caution. That's why the, the Bereans are celebrated in Acts as being a, a group of, of people that run things through the filter of Scripture. Acts 17.11 says, They receive the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I would love that to be us as a, as a people, that we would examine things and run them through the filter of Scripture. Is that accurate? Where are they going with that truth? So Eliphaz is one of the people that, you'll, if you have an encounter, you will encounter someone like that. The next guy, his buddy, his name is Bildad. I think he's also in the Lord of the Rings. Uh, but, um, <laughs> uh, but he could be known as the history expert could be known as the history expert. He asserts that wicked suffer, that's just how it is, and history is proof. History is proof. In other words, Bildad found his authority in tradition and history, and you come across that person as well that speaks from a, a point of clearly they've read a lot more than you, clearly they've experienced a lot more than you, and history has proven this to be true, so it has to be an absolute truth. And that's the counsel that he's giving, this guy Bildad. And he's showing up and he's talking with self-righteous arrogance like none other. Job 11, 11 and 12, he describes uh, Job or someone that's acting like Job as worthless men, a stupid man just dripping with arrogance. He describes in chapter 11, also verse 17, that if he'll just acknowledge his sin, life will be, will be brighter than the noonday. If you just take care of this sin issue, Job, it's, it's all going to be bright and rosy again. And Job's sitting in his ashes. Ah, I don't know about that. Third, bu third buddy, Zophar, 
most likely the youngest of a group of the group because according to tradition the youngest person would wait to, to to speak last and so he's coming with his advice and where one had the the authority of experience the other had authority of tradition and history uh, he shows up with really no authority at all this person that's just kind of a self-appointed critic that has it all figured out just based on their life and limited experience. Anybody encounter this person in life? Somebody that's just so dogmatic and has it all solved and, and isn't looking for a discussion. They just have the answers already. And you have to wrestle through that, the, the feedback that that person gives. No basis of authority other than himself. Had this story that was passed on to me that I thought was uh, interesting. I wanted to just read to you briefly. It says this, an atheist was seated next to a little girl on an airplane, and he turned to her and said, Do you want to talk? Flights go quicker if you strike up a conversation with your fellow passenger. The little girl, who had just started to read her book, replied to the total stranger, What would you like to talk about? Oh, I don't know, said the atheist. How about why there's no God, or no heaven or hell, or no life after death, as he smiled smugly? Okay, she said. Those could be interesting topics, but let me ask you a question first. A horse, a cow, and a deer all ate the, eat the same stuff, grass. Yet a deer excretes little pellets, while a cow turns out a flat patty, but a horse produces clumps. Why do you suppose that is? The atheist, visibly surprised by the little girl's intelligence, thinks about it and says, Hmm, I have no idea. To which the little girl replies, Do you really feel qualified to discuss God, heaven, and hell, or life after death? When you don't know crap? <laughs> I thought that was, uh, was cute. This idea of there's so many people going around, and that must be how God perceives. We talked about that in the room beforehand, whether or not you guys would be okay with the word crap, but you seem to be okay. Uh, and so, so we talk, if you think about so many people that based on their experiences and their, all they've gleamed in their long lifetime, that they have it all figured out. And we're about to see in a couple weeks God's rebuke to all this that asks, where were you? When I laid the foundations, we'll get to that later. But the idea is this is, again, someone to be cautious of who we receive our counsel from. And really, their, their counsel gradually got more and more direct. It started, phase one was kind of general, where God, he, the idea that God punishes the wicked and prospers the good, that was kind of more general and vague. Then phase two, when they didn't feel like Job was actually getting it or sinking in, then it moves to get more specific that the wicked are always punished and you are being punished. Like the subtle approach of that. The wicked are always punished and hmm, you're being punished right now. Some people have that, that subtle presentation of the same big idea and then by the end they get even more direct. Phase three, pretty much they're just like, hey Job, you're a sinner. Let's, let's just be, be real here. Let, let, let's get the, the, the elephant out in the room. You're, you're a sinner. That's why you suffer. And all of that, you imagine, pretty confusing for Job to navigate. Because why? Because some of what they're saying, here's the dangerous part, and you have to be aware of this, some of what they're saying is true. When we sin, often 
we do suffer. So many times our, our bad choices do lead to bad ramifications. You can point to examples all around us and you're just like, yeah, I see that ha- happen often. And often when you make ro- right choices, you're blessed. That, that's, that's, that's things that we see also play down in our life. But here's where they went wrong. Is anytime you move to the word always, always, that's what got them in trouble. That, that, that view of saying always when you sin, you're going to suffer. And that's where Job, it's kind of interesting to see his response. He struggles making sense out of it. But in chapter 21, verses 7 through 14, he points out the obvious break in their understanding that he points to the fact that evil people do prosper. Evil people do prosper. We see it in the world still present today. He's like, look around the landscape of our our culture, and there's plenty of people that have done some really terrible things that from the outside really looks like they're doing well, right? Have you guys noticed this in the world around us? Some people that seem to just have success after success after success, uh, and you're just like, wait a second. Well, how how does that work? So that's Job's pushback because he understood when things are just a little bit off, when truth is a little bit tweaked, it's dangerous because you're shaping a worldview that's supposed to support the weight of trials. You think about that. Has anybody ever played that that game in a social setting, Two Truths and a Lie? You guys done that before? And kind of the idea of the game is you, you write down two things that's actually happened to you in your life, and then you write down one that, he, 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 you get a chance to lie about. And, uh, and, and the person and the rest of the group has to determine which one, you guys have, has anybody played this? Or am I just presenting a new game to you? Uh, then somebody has to determine which one is the actual lie out of the mix. And here's the secret of doing really well at that game. You make your lie really close to the truth, right? It's just a real finite twist, and that's how you sell it, right? That's how you sell it because you're like, hmm, that's almost believable. One little thing can completely mess up the message. I had somebody pass on this image to me. It made me chuckle. Let's eat grandma. Let's eat grandma. Commas save lives. <laughs> Guys will maybe get that later on in your day, but that's a, the I, idea here is, man, it can be the slightest difference, but a whole different message, right? A completely different message based on one little tweak, and I would suggest that's what the enemy does in our life. Job pushes back, and he, he actually aligns with what Jesus says in Matthew 5.45, for he makes the sun, referring to God, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. This picture that both are on a planet that still get glimpses of God's favor and kindness. But remember, we've learned this in other messages. God's, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. That's why it's there. And so here, here he pushes back, but I would suggest... That in all of this, he, Job got some things right, came to some right conclusions, and to some conclusions that are kind of off base. And, uh, and it was interesting because I was reading some different commentators that one would suggest, no, he never did anything wrong. And I'm like, yeah, he did. He had some pretty jacked up thinking. Look at, look at some of these things that he got wrong, wrong with, and then we'll touch on some things he did right with. 
Maybe some of these you can relate with that you've gotten sucked into some of these traps of thinking. God has wronged me. That's the first one. And he finds that in 19.6. Know that God has put me in the wrong. Or the idea that there is no justice. Verse 7 of chapter 19, he says, I call for help, but there is no justice. Well, that's not accurate. I, how about 19.11? The idea, it says, he has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. The idea that God is against me, is that, is that accurate? Is, is God against me? Are you his adversary? Is he trying to take you out? How about this one in chapter 27, verse 2? It is God's fault that I am bitter. It says, God has taken away my right hand and embittered my soul. In other words, saying, I'm only mad because of what God did to me. How often do we fall into some of these, God's against me, it's God's fault. The only reason I'm, I'm so mad all the time is God made me like this. God did this to me. All of these things you can file under the umbrella of stinking thinking, if you will. And really the biggest thing that you'll see in the, his, the, his responses and his feedback was he had kind of bought into this whole self-righteous thing. I'd say he crossed the line in that area as well. That He tries to say, hey, listen, if there was a, if there was a fair judge in all of this, then he could come and assess me and come to the conclusion that I'm innocent. Here's a question for you. Based on our, our memory verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is, is he innocent or guilty before Almighty God? Here's the, the truth of this story. Job, just like us, was a sinner. He got a lot of things right. He got some things wrong. He did good. He did some good stuff. He did some dumb stuff. He said some good stuff. He said some dumb stuff. Here's the reminder in the study of God's word. Guess how many heroes there are? One. One hero. That's what this book is about. Don't get confused in Sunday school stories thinking that there's all these great heroes when the truth is there's really just one hero that nailed it, one that stayed perfect through the whole thing, and that's Jesus Christ. And that leads to some of the good examples or good conclusions that he came to. I love this in uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 2, him recognizing that there's a major gap between God and man. He says it in verse 2, he says, but how can man be in the right before God? In other words, with a perfect standard of almighty God, how can I be considered right before him? It's just not possible for us to stand. Second thing he got right is that there needs to be a mediator between us and God. I think that's fascinating before we knew really anything about Jesus Christ. He came to that conclusion. Take a look at these verses here. In chapter 19, that should be 19, says, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that, he, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter, arbiter between us who may lay his hand on both of us. In other words, he, there's no one speaking in between, no one coming in between, pointing to the same reality that we come to. Man, I can't fix myself before a perfect God. There needs to be a mediator between God and man. This is affirmed awesomely in the, I don't think that's a word, uh, in, in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Or 1 John 2.1, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
He, before this, literally hundreds and potentially even thousands of years before Christ's arrival, understood our need for someone to fill the gap between our imperfections and a perfect God. There has to be someone as a mediator. Pretty awesome to see he recognizes that. And then this is probably the most powerful one, is that putting his hope in as a redeemer. Look at chapter 19, verses 25 and 26 here. This is beautiful verses. A lot of you might be familiar with this. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Beautiful picture and forecast of what's to come. Most likely in his understanding was that God would be the Redeemer. But looking now back at this, you recognize the Redeemer came in the form of Jesus Christ. This is a big deal. What a beautiful passage. I was talking yesterday. We had this big work day. A bunch of guys stuck around and uh, did some demo stuff. Uh, John mentioned that earlier this morning. But uh, it was interesting to me because co- a couple of the guys, I was walking by and they were, just, they were just talking or whatever. And one of them made the comment like, oh, we, we, we've got work to do. We need to stop talking. We're not intended to be talking. And I'm just like, it's actually, it's okay. This is designed for us to interact and talk. But, uh, but I was uh, talking with Tim Crabb uh, in the back, and we were in the uh, clearing out one of those bathrooms back there and kind of doing the demo stuff in there and just chatting with him a little bit. And he's telling me about his father, who was a minister for 30 plus years, faithful senior pastor teaching God's word. And his, he says, you know, this section of Job that you're coming up upon, he said, it really means a lot to me because that was the verse that my, my father literally wanted upon at his funeral he wanted, he requested that a Bible would be laid on his chest and his finger would be pointing to that verse. Isn't that crazy? He's like, he's like, he's like, he says, so, so as you can imagine, he says, I'm the one that put his finger on that verse as a reminder for people as it was highlighted in the Bible laying on his chest. He said, that, that verse means a lot to me. And I'd suggest that that verse means a lot to all of us. Because our one hope, as we know, in trial, in suffering, is in our Redeemer. The one that at some point is going to take us out of this world, that's going to take us, we're going to be done with all this suffering. This is going to be a faint, distant memory in our rearview mirror. Thankfully, Job, in the bigger picture, he ultimately rejects the bad counsel. I thought it was a couple things, just as we conclude here, to point out. First thing in his conversation with Bildad, he says in chapter 26, 4, this was his response. He asked him, and this is one I think we could glean from. He asked Bildad, he says, with whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out of you? In other words, where is that counsel coming from? Where is that? Where is that? Is that from your knowledge that you've built up from your plethora of unbelievable experiences? Is that what it's coming from? I'll tell you what, if it's not coming from God's word or at least through the filter of God's word, you should respond the same way that he does. Hey, where's that coming from? Where, where'd you get that information? Where, how, how'd, you, how'd you come to that conclusion? He rejects the counsel of this friend. And then big picture wise, his ultimate rejection of their counsel is pointed out in chapter 16, verses 19. It says, even now, behold my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me, 
my eye pours out tears to God, that he would agree the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. In other words, my witness is in heaven. I don't have to worry about your conclusion about things. And this is a wonderful thing for us that are going through trial right now. That you don't, you don't have to take every bit of counsel or suggestion that somebody gives you during your grief. You can say, you know what, my advocate is above. I don't necessarily have it all figured out, but I do know his character. He's like a good friend. He's like a neighbor that I chat with. He's somebody I have relationship with. My hope for us, gleaming from this text, is that we wouldn't get counsel just based on someone's experiences. We wouldn't get counsel based on somebody that has a great grasp of history. That we wouldn't get counsel based on somebody that thinks they on their own have it all figured out. That we wouldn't get counsel that's come from the enemy that's just a, a tweak of the truth by just a little small margin. That we would get our counsel from this book. That the Spirit would lead us in understanding this. That we would seek Him with all of our hearts. That's my prayer for us. I think we can learn a lot from good old Job. Let me pray as we wrap up. God, thank you so much for this chance to be in your word and this example that you gave us in this story in scripture. What a powerful one. What a relevant one. I know even as we talk this morning, there's people like we've mentioned that are in the thick of it, that are going through their trial, that are in the, uh, the middle of the storm. I pray that they would sense your comfort in this, that they would really recognize what is the source of good counsel and what is not the source of good counsel? That we'd have wisdom enough to discern that. Your word says if any of us are lacking wisdom, we're to ask for it. God, thank you so much just for your patience with us. I, I love, God, how you are patient with Job. You let him wrestle through this. You let him come up with some wrong conclusions. You're patient in that, God, that we would gleam and learn from that as well. Thank you for your grace. We love you so much. In Jesus Christ's name.